Welcome to this week's edition of Record Roundtable, where we talk about an artist, where we talk about a producer. Sometimes we talk about both at the same time, and this week we're talking about Steve Albini. This is Caleb Robinson speaking. I'm here with... I am Dax. Jared. And this is Tyler here. So, this week again, we've been talking about Steve Albini, and how did everybody feel about Steve Albini this week? I have mixed feelings. We will get there. It was was interesting. It was uh, a lot of bass going on, some crazy vocal deliveries, and uh, it was music. By definition, I think it does qualify. Tyler, how did you feel about listening to Steve Albini's music and his production work? I felt pretty good about it. I mean, this was my choice, and therefore I forced it upon all of you. Not as forcibly on Caleb, probably, as the rest of you. No, I would say not. But it was all quite good. I, uh, I feel as though I got to listen to a much more varied selection of music over the last week than I usually get to because of the fact that we got to listen to a lot of his production work and not to to get too deep into it yet. Steve Albini is a a varied producer for sure. He uh, definitely will do not any album and he does have a very specific sound that he typically goes for, which is like a typical kind of noisy sound. But at the same time, he is willing to produce things that are outside of his realm of expertise. Most definitely. He has produced a lot of things that people may not be aware of, although that's kind of the point of his production style, which we can get into later as well. But he he does. He's willing to do... I mean, he sees himself in terms of like who he is as a producer or even even as an engineer, as a person who does a job. So he's not going to turn down, you know, work necessarily, unless he just thinks that he's not going to benefit the band who he's recording. Or producing. So, he's willing to do lots of things. Um, so, in addition to talking about Steve Albini's production work, a lot of a lot of people probably are more aware of his engineering and are less familiar with the fact that he has fronted two musical acts in his time. Uh, both of those being Big Black and Shellac. Similar names. They are similar names. He also fronted uh, a group known as Rape Man that had, a, a, I believe, like one release uh, in Flower 2. But these are the two groups that people are kind of really know them for. And Big Black, I, th- I thought about it, and I'm glad that I held off. But, uh, for instance, when we did Nine Inch Nails, I could have chosen Big Black, a Big Black album, for instance, because we did extra albums that week. But I did not, and I'm glad that I didn't for this exact week. But they're also a group who is known t- as uh, kind of getting some pioneering aspects in of, of kind of an industrial noise type of music. I would certainly say so. I mean, uh, Atomizer came out in 85 and that is, I mean, industrial music had already kind of like seen its roots begin in like before that had happened, but it certainly was a case that big black was kind of, I don't want to say a trailblazer, but they certainly helped blaze the trail in a certain way for industrial music to continue on for a group like a nine inch nails to, kind of find their sound a couple years later. Yeah, that's very true. And for instance, in Big Black, uh, he, all of the drums are drum machines. There's no live drummer in the band. So that kind of, uh, the use of those type of, of like a drum machine in a live band type situation and the emphasis on bass and various kind of ambient noises really kind of, made people think a little bit differently about how you can do some of those things, which I can't, I mean, it's hard to not think that Trent Reznor had probably heard this at one point and had, and had some type of pulled something from it. I mean, being a one man band, you've got to be able to do certain things, you know what I mean? And there's even just the way that they made music is uh, something that's kind of interesting to see. So I will ask, and this will be for the, the full table, of course, but I am not sure if you guys, Jared and Dax will have, a for sure answer to this one. Do you prefer Big Black or Shellac? I if you probably preferred Big Black, I'd say. I think so. I mean, they're pretty close uh, as far as which one I like more than. I, I don't really like one too much more than the other. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they're there. I think Big Black was probably more, uh, well, obviously it was, but like I consider them to be more punk rock, um, whereas um, Shellac was more post-hardcore. Right. Similar, a little. similar to um, Swans a little bit and a little bit like uh, the Fugazi that we listened to. Yes. Um, whereas I kind of thought of Big Black as, it reminded me a little bit of Henry Rollins stuff. Sure. And Black Flag. So that's kind of where I got some stuff that I, I thought of. That Big Black sense. Flag. That's going to be on Good Man, Bad Band. That was, there you go. There's a good one. Uh, yeah, you know, Big Black existed in, in the era where we're still pretty heavy in, uh, in hardcore punk. And it's, and they definitely, being younger at the time and being in that, in that type of scene, it's hard not to draw some connections there. You know what I mean? But Shellac, of course, is post hardcore. And in fact, they're one of, Shellac is a, a band that gets thrown around a lot when you talk about post hardcore like 90s, late 80s into 90s post-hardcore, like the early period of it. Uh, Shellac and Fugazi and, a lot, of course, all the other Discord bands. So, like, for instance, on Fugazi Week, the additional albums that I chose for you guys were all actually later um, post-hardcore albums for the most part. But they're kind of like a, a pinnacle group in post-hardcore as well. I think for me, I think it would, it's kind of hard to choose, but I just really find myself going to Big Black a lot. I listen to a lot to Big Black quite a bit. Uh, I own songs about fucking on vinyl and I love Atomizer and never bought it. Uh, even though it was at VGR for like, I don't know, weeks upon weeks. Every time I went, I never bought it and now I can't find it anywhere and it drives me insane, but. I could see that driving you insane. I'm actually surprised. I figure that you probably would have preferred a shellac over a big black. I think that it makes sense for you to like either of them, but I feel as though knowing your style of music that you usually gravitate towards that a shellac falls within that realm a little bit more than a big black. Yeah, normally I would probably think that, but I think part of what it is is that for me, I have bands that are really prominent for me for post-hardcore. And bands that really, because I didn't, I like, for instance, I listened to Fugazi, and then from there I went to all the Discord stuff. So all of my post-hardcore, early post-hardcore stuff for me, like the influence it had on me, was ab- absent of Shellac. And I started listening to Shellac later. Meanwhile, in terms of, like, the sound of, you know, I didn't listen to Nine Inch Nails that much, for instance, you know, and... The sound that Big Black has is a sound that I don't have, like an artist I regularly listen to in that genre. So, you know, I find myself returning to Big Black a lot more than Shellac because of that, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I uh, I would say if I had to choose, I would say that I definitely preferred Big Black over Shellac. I, um, I would find that I enjoyed the majority of Big Black and I found that there were definitely pieces of shellac that I did not enjoy. So, for example, and I'm sure that, Tyler, you can definitely speak to this, off of the album Terraform, mm-hmm. you know the song, Didn't We Deserve a Look at You the Way You Really Are? Yep. I do not like that song. Too lengthy, doesn't do much, honestly. It's just, it's like, I think the issue that I found with shellac in a lot of ways was that I found that, you know, typically I'm okay with a patience testing song, one that's very long one that is complex, but I found that shellac would do something not like it would do very, something very standard for a long time. They're not doing something very dynamic for a long period of time. So the patience testing is more like we're not really doing anything that um, that insane. We're not really doing anything that complex. We're just kind of existing in space and time for 12 straight minutes. Yeah, it's kind of cyclical in that way. In that aspect, too, they have some some kind of feeling of of prog in there as well. You know what I mean? So I figured, I mean, when I was listening this week, I hadn't listened to Terraform in a while. And when I listened to it again, I was like, Oh yeah, I, I'm sure that no one will like this song. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, d- did you guys remember the first track to Terraform? Yeah. The one that's like 12 minutes long, the yeah. baseline that just yeah, goes on no, and on. Yeah. Yeah. I was not into that. Yeah. And it's got a drum beat that goes on, a pretty simple drum beat that goes on for a while as well. Yeah. We we skipped ahead a few different times and it was always the same thing, so I was like, oh my goodness. Let's play a little let's play a little bit of that song just for context. And you get it, that's the twelve minutes. <laughs> I will say that yeah, they I mean kind <laughs> yeah. of for the most part, yes. 
I will say though that at, when I was listening to it, one thing that's interesting about about that is, and I don't know if this was, I haven't read a lot about that song to see if it was an, an intentional thing of like this is why they're doing it, but when it goes on for a long time, and you you know when when a portion of a song that's repetitive happens, you naturally start to think about it in meter. You know what I mean? And you're like, okay, this is going to be the end of it. And it's not. And then you're like, uh, okay. And then you try to guess another end. But then when it goes beyond like three guesses of when the end of that segment will be, you just kind of like quit guessing that it's going to end. Yeah. You kind of just accept that this is where you exist now. Yeah. It just ends wherever it ends. And what's cool about that is like you're kind of just at the will of the song. It like turns your brain off in terms of that, which is interesting. But That's similar to like uh, the, the tactics they use in torture. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> they don't want you to know. They don't want you to know when it will end. They want you to think it will continue <laughs> for the foreseeable future. That's one way to look at that. It's twelve minutes and it's nothing but that baseline. But uh, I, I think what is that? The what is that song? Is like it goes on and on, my friend, and it goes on forever. What what is that song, song that never ends on SpongeBob SquarePants? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, it's not from SpongeBob. I don't think that's from SpongeBob. Uh, friend. Uh, yeah, what I also realized. Uh, is that once your brain kind of turns off, you kind of start hearing things differently. Because you have like, a, for instance, in that song, I had a rhythm going on when I was actively thinking about, you know, what was happening. And then once I turned it off, I actually heard, I heard it in a different way. You know what I'm saying? The beginning of a, of a, the beginning of a uh, meter was different. You know, it like shifted. So that cyclical part had multiple parts that could be a beginning. And I didn't notice that. Until I just quit trying to guess when it was going to end, kind of thing, and I heard it, I started to hear it a little bit differently, which was kind of interesting. But it's a little bit brutal. I will also say really quickly, I think uh, in terms of shellac, I think that they hit their stride the most in terms of having a good sound uh, on a thousand hertz. I think that's that's the album that I think really hit me a little bit more than the rest of shellac's work. I think that a thousand hertz. They they were doing something a little bit different because like if you look at what they were doing on Terraform and what you're doing on At Action Park their debut album the vocals from Albini are so minimal from my, from my perspective and a thousand hertz pretty immediately when you have Prayer to God he is like kind of a very obvious presence in Shellac rather than what he was in the two albums before as a vocalist I mean obviously his guitar work was present but less so, less so of his vocals were present on the first two albums yeah a thousand hertz is really where it kind of they do hit a good stride there and that's that's probably their most prominent album in terms of their career as a as a post-hardcore band would be without 1000 hertz yeah did, did you see uh that on that album uh the song prayer to god which is the uh, opening track. Yes. It features uh, Philip Baker Hall, who is an actor doing the introduction and mm-hmm. who has been in uh, lots of different things. He played Richard Nixon in uh, Secret Honor. He was in a Paul Thomas Anderson film. He was in, uh, where did it go? Talented Mr. Ripley. Um, what was the other thing I saw that was good? Truman Show. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, they had an actor, a rel- relatively reputable actor, do the vocal introduction to that album. That's interesting. That is interesting. We should listen. We should listen to a little bit of that that vocal intro. Shellac of North America, catalog number TG two eleven CD, audio compact disc, forty four point one kilohertz sample rate, sixteen bit word length, samples represented in twos complement binary, eight to fourteen expansion, set reproducer for reference level, one thousand hertz. One true God above. That's acting. 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 Quite good. I'm trying to think of where I know where I remember him from most, but I can't. I can't remember it. He plays a doctor. I I saw his face. I saw his face on Wikipedia, and I'm like, I know who that guy is. I just could not picture a movie. Were you a believer then? Yeah, I was a believer. Okay, I know you saw his face. So they said about that album. Uh, there are no 12-minute songs on this one. This record is a more is more mean-spirited. Todd sings. That's what they said about 1,000 Hertz. Huh. I, I, I think I liked 1,000 Hertz. It, yeah. it seemed like it was pretty good. Yeah. 
Had a song called Squirrel Song. That's pretty fun, huh? That is fun. I like that. That's uh, also a song off of Elephant by White Stripes. The Squirrel Song, right? Oh, is it? Honest. Squirrel Song. Oh. Oh, it's called Little Acorns. Little Acorns. Bummer. Be like the squirrel, girl. I was going to say, I knew I knew what you were talking about, <laughs> but yeah. The shellac song, the shellac, shellac song, actually, they are trying to go find the White Stripes song and take it back to their house. Uh-huh. Hey, there we go. That must be it. Hit th- three years prior. Yes. Um, going back to uh, the Big Black album, the second album, Songs About Fucking, there's a couple different interesting things on that album that I found. Actually, probably about three things. So... The the first is on the second track, the model. It is a cover of tr- of Kraftwerk. Then uh, there's a bonus track on the CD. It's a cover a of what? cheap of Cheap Trick called did, She's did, a whore. He's a whore. Did you say a bonus track? This says bonus. It's not a hidden track. It's a bonus oh, track. Okay, That's okay, different. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, the C the CD bonus track. They did a cover of a song called He's a Whore by Cheap Trick. That's cool. Yep. Uh, Steve Albini did some production for Cheap Trick, right? Oh, wow. I don't know. If he you did. Say so, okay. He did. Okay, well, that, you should have said it <laughs> definitively. <laughs> Didn't he do that? Yeah, I know he did that, but I uh, just wanted to see if you knew. While we're on this album, I will go ahead and play my favorite song. I, I, it, I believe I'm going to pick the song Bad Penny. That is a good, yeah. Bad Penny was, I think, my favorite uh, song from Songs About Fucking as well. I hope we all say the name of that album by the end of this episode. Kind of sounds like he's saying uh, Brad Penny, which is a baseball player too. He's a pitcher. Oh, uh, good to know. Fun. Yeah, I was actually I was gonna say, and this is uh, I didn't mention this ahead of time. I was about to, but I'm glad that you did what you did. I was gonna say I would like to say our favorite song from either Shellac or Big Black, but also perhaps mention a song that you really enjoyed from his production work as well. I was wondering. Oh. So if you if you'd like to mention a song, you may as also. You may as well also mention a song that really. I saved. Out to you. Well, I saved a shellac song. I don't remember why. So if we play it, maybe I'll remember why I saved it. So if that's what you want me to do, I can do that too. Oh, I didn't mean both bands. I meant a, oh, a production I song. See. So a song that he was involved in, in terms of like just a a, ba- a band song and a production song. Okay. Is what you were okay. saying, yeah. So that's I like the, that comes to mind. I like the concept of that song. I mean, like you know, like the idea of a bad penny is it's a pretty good concept, and I, I like the way that, that they did that. Yeah. Yeah. Undoubtedly. Big Black is also a band that uh, released four EPs, two full-length albums and four EPs. And I, I spared you all from listening to any of them, although I was very tempted, because uh, their Bulldozer EP and uh, their EP called Headache, which was the last release, both both released, uh, one was before uh, Atomizer in 1983, that was Bulldozer, and one was uh, before Songs About Fucking in 1987, released just before, which was Headache. Uh, contains some songs that are really great and kind of pinnacle of understanding some Big Black as well. But not that you can't get a good view from Atomizer and songs about fucking. But uh, it's uh, it's kind of weird. I mean, we don't see bands put EPs out in the same way anymore. But it's interesting to see a group that has two major, two uh, full-length releases and four EPs. I think it's just kind of like, well, you know me. I'm a person who enjoys the EP. You do love your EPs. Uh, I'm an EP hey, person. And Jared... Uh, I had you save a song, I think, that sounded like something else. Is that what you saved? Maybe. That might be it. I was just thinking about it. Uh, let me find it. From Shellac. Mouthpiece. You Can we play that? Can we make sure that's what I'm thinking of? Mouthpiece. 
that uh, that bass part right there. Uh, doesn't that sound like smoke on the water? I got big smoke on the water vibes from that song, which is hilarious because it's like the first thing people usually learn when they pick up an instrument. I see what you're doing there. So I looked up uh, Rape Man, the group that you were talking about. It was inspired by a comic book. I looked this up. Rape Man? Yeah, the oh, name. Yeah. Well, on their album, the Two Pack Mule, Two Nuns in a Pack Mule. Sorry, I didn't want to. It's their first and only album. They have some interesting songs on there. They got the fifth track called Kim Gordon's Panties, which is she's the member of Sonic Youth. Then the ninth song on there is a cover of Just Got Paid by ZZ Top. Hey. <laughs> this band, it's weird. I read about the name. Uh, it is named after a Japanese comic called Rape Man. He's like a an anti-hero, I guess, in this comic uh, which, you know, is a thing. I guess in Japan, there's this whole subsection of rape comics. That's That was like a, a genre, I guess. But uh, it said that Albini was obsessed with it. So he wanted to name his band after that. Huh. Isn't that... Like, I can't tell if, like, he's he's doing it as a bit or if he's, like, in... I don't know. I don't... It's politicized. It's uh, something. It's... Uh, one of the other members said that was the worst musical mistake he's ever made. Huh. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, I suppose. You know, the sides of that album are uh, side yo and side mo. They're not side one and two. Yeah, I read that as well. That's pretty That's pretty interesting. <laughs> that is interesting, yeah. He's kind of like a... I mean, it's not surprising when you think about some of the work that he's done. I mean, he's just kind of a weirdo in a way. You know what I mean? He is. He's an odd guy. Like in the way that Cobain kind of was, but even like not not as you know, like Cobain had like a twisted, you know, and he had mental health issues that like kind of led him down certain places and the drugs and all of that. Albini's just weird. Like apart from all of those things. Yeah. Dax, why don't you go ahead and tell us your favorite song of a production work and your favorite song from the bands? Yeah, so I think um favorite song from a band, I think uh, I'm going to go with Copper from Shellac. There was a couple I was thinking about, but I think I'm, I've landed on that one. burst yeah i like that song it's pretty short too which is something there's, there's some weird ones on there he's mentioned two shellac songs they're both from terraform look at that that's true look at that the, the most difficult album probably of all of shellac yeah look at that look at you pr i'm proud of you over there oh thanks dad yeah you're welcome son you want to mention your uh your favorite song from some of his production work yeah sure so um just of the things that we listen to over the course of the week, uh, I would say Drunken Lullabies uh, by Flogging Molly. It's a great, great song. I bet oh, you can't so guess good. where I heard this song first. Was it Was it Tony Hawk? Pro Skater 4, baby. song i'm All a right. huge fan of irish punk music what what let's let's do a little game real quick real quick everybody answer real quickly flogging molly or dropkick murphy flogging molly flogging molly dropkick murphy's for me 
Same for me. We tied it up. Ooh. Ooh. All right. Take that one there to Patreon, go. baby. <laughs> we ought to take it on. I like way more Dropkick Murphy songs than I do Flogging Mom. Me too. It's That's tough. Cool. I like them both. I think they're the which I think that Dropkick Murphy's is the OG in this group as well. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah I think they're older than Flogging Mom. Obviously, Molly. I think the Pogues are the you know the, the true OGs. They're the true OGs. Yes, but with less gain. So we've already kind of discussed quite a bit of uh the bands that Steve Albini comes from, but just at the sheer magnitude of albums that he has been involved in, in terms of production, recording, engineering, so on and so forth, I believe it would be worthwhile to spend some time in terms of talking about just production in general on his end. So he, he basically has, I mean, it's astounding the amount of albums that he has dipped his hands into. I find it that he is pretty willing to just be involved in the music that people come to him with and um thousands of albums right truly it's 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 a a completely mind-blowing amount of albums if you look through his discography it's so hard to determine exactly which albums are like the like it's hard to really know which albums he's a part of because there's just so many of them a lot of the ones that are like really big standouts are um which one of them I, I'm sure Dax will want to talk about here in a second, but he was involved in, of course, Surfer Rosa, Pixies. He was involved in Rid of Me, PJ Harvey, uh, many of the other albums that we've already talked about a little bit. And then, of course, he was a part of In Utero, Nirvana. So, In Utero, let's spend some time on this real quick. Um, I didn't know much about his production. I knew that he produced it, but that was about all I knew. I looked into it. His mix, uh, the band did not like it first. Um, I guess it grew on them. They did like it later on, but um, they did not like it. So they went to their record label and it was remixed by, I think it was like a producer for R.E.M. or something like that. And that is what actually was published until, what was it, 2013? 2013, yes. They sent it back to Albini and he remixed it for a re-release. So there are three mixes. Albini's original mix never got released. The mix that most people know is not Albini. He recorded it, but... Right. I actually own the 2013 mix on vinyl. So, And you can tell a pretty noticeable difference in the way that the the instrumentation is boosted versus the vocals from his production work uh quotes from the band that was their biggest complaint that the vocals were drowned out it's just funny for an album that nirvana made in an attempt to turn all of their fans away which is very much true which we have talked about of course on the nirvana episode go back on the nirvana episode to hear us talk a little bit more about nirvana of course uh what was that like our third episode is early 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 real real early actually Um, yeah it was it was our third episode that's what i thought yeah i think it goes modest mouse beatles then nirvana uh, but yeah, he th- it's very much an album where they were trying to shove people away from them. And um, Albini is definitely somebody who makes sense to take their, not necessarily commercial sound, but more commercial sound off of Nevermind. Polished. polished, thank you. A more polished sound and just rip it into shreds and make it more noisy. And when you understand the history of Nevermind, you know that the producer and the studio engineers on Nevermind had a heavier hand in the sound of that album than people think, for instance. I mean, that polished, a little more mainstream sound uh, was was polished by the production staff. So, it, you know, and that gets into a little bit of Albini's take on uh, on production, which, you know, his main goal as a producer, which when he's a producer, he still really sees himself as a sound engineer. Uh, you know, is to try to get down, you know, record what the band wants kind of thing. Like, what is your vision for this this music? Like, what's the sound you're going for? And then he gets it down. And that's kind of the point. I mean, it just stays true to the intentions of the artist itself. So that's I think that's pretty cool. I was just going to say, it is very admirable the way he approaches it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of producers will try to shove things people's way for the sake of either their own acclaim or because of a label and they want to make it more, you know, it's a little more sellable, you know, but he just prefers to sit back and, and use the knowledge he has mostly like as a sound engineer and recording engineer and put that into practice. I mean, he's pretty specific about mic placement 
and uh, picking up the ambiance of a room, you know, so how you treat a room, not only in terms of mic, but in terms of what you've got on the walls and what the room sound is, you know, how those things can play into getting a sound that the band wants to achieve. So I think that's why a lot of bands who can kind of choose what to do, you know, like they have a choice in the matter of who's producing the album, seek him out as a person that they want to work with. Well, I think that that also, um, you know, one of the things that you'll notice about a lot of Albini's work, you know, you have a Surfer Rosa in, in utero where he's producing something that's a little bit bigger than even he is in a lot of ways. Um, but there are tons and tons of in, uh, independent acts that he is willing to work with. And so I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that they are independent acts or they're not major, like they're not on major labels. So there's a little bit more freedom for them to be able to work with an Albini and Albina to be willing to let them do their own thing because they're not being pushed by like a big label for the most part, not all of the instances, but like, you know, he's done work with like, you know, noise acts like Jesus lizard, metal acts like neurosis and high on fire. He's worked with post rock, like Godspeed, you black emperor. Like he's worked with a lot, a lot, a lot of different styles, but he's also worked with a lot of bands that are maybe not necessarily big names. And he doesn't charge very much at all. He really? takes no royalties. Um, it's a one time. I think he charges by day. Huh. So you book the studio for however long you think it'll be. And then he'll try to make it as quickly and efficiently as possible. And uh, it's very uh, cheap, I would imagine, to go to him. Uh, much cheaper than like a, a big producer that would be doing. Rick Rubin. Yes. Yeah, of course. Of course, when you go to Rick Rubin, it's with the intent of, you know, he's going to change, transform your music into Rick Rubin music kind of thing. You know what I mean? He's going to have a hand in it, and that's the kind of thing you may be looking for, I suppose. So but that speaks to just the that, the role of a producer in an album. and that And it's something that a lot of music listeners don't always think about is, that oftentimes, especially with a band who is more popular, and that doesn't have to mean that like everyone knows them, but like you know, someone who's on a sizable label, um, you know, if they're put in touch with certain producers, a lot of times those producers have some type of effect on the on the outcome, you know. And a, the Beatles are pretty noticeable because all like all that later work with the Wall of Sound stuff was all post. I mean, none of that stuff was in there to begin with, and that was a lot of uh, Phil Spector putting stuff in there. And just kind of adding to all that. And it's not always a band's decision. So, But but it's interesting to see like the effect that people outside of the group have on an end product in that way. Uh, examples like Max Martin did a lot of pop music. Uh, you can listen to all kinds of like spanning decades uh, of music that he's done. And they sound very similar to each other. Uh, Pharrell produces a lot. And he he has kind of a touch that he puts on there. He even has like a signature thing, like a lot of the songs he does, they all start with like a four count, which if you look up a bunch of things he's produced, it's a bump, bump, bump. And then it just goes listen the to the song happy and yeah. you've already got it down. There's so many of them that start out just like that. It's pretty insane. Yeah. I, I do think that majority wise, though, if you listen to a lot of the things that he's done. Not everything by any means, but I do think that the one thing that he gravitates towards most, which I think makes total sense, is he's very much interested in noise-based rock. He very much wants to work with some... So, like, if you take an example, and this is a pretty, like, apparent example, is uh, Slint, where if you listen to their debut album, Tweez, it is a much noisier and more chaotic sound than what you get off of Spiderland. And... You know, I could see more of a Albini being interested in an album like Tweez than he would be interested in an album like Spiderland. Not to say that one is better than the other. Spiderland is better, but that makes me wonder, though, uh, is that because like is he working with these people because he's worked with other people in a similar vein, and these bands are like he's the one to go to, or is he like choosing who to work with? Because I, I think it's probably the former. I think. The people of that style are choosing him. I would agree with you on that for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people. If I had a band, I would absolutely want one of the albums to be produced by him. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm a person who likes like his influence as a producer and the, the work that he's worked with on me is like heavy. So that's like a thing. And that's kind of the aura he has around him. But I think also, I think it kind of is works on the reverse too because I think a lot of the times the noisier aspect of them may not always come from the music initially but part of it's the fact that 
he heavily focuses on like on sound in that sense. He uh, one of his one of the things he prefers to do is instead of doing multi-track recording, he likes live in the studio recording. And he tries to do that as much as possible. So he tries to have the band, everyone in there playing live. As I mentioned, the mic setup, the room treatment, it's all about collecting, you know, a sound right there, you know, so you don't, you can't just raise the guitar or lower the guitar in post. You know what I mean? You've got to, you can't isolate it. You've got to have it all there. So I wonder if like his style of recording doesn't also reflect that a little bit. I would agree. And I also, I mean, I would also say there's definitely a little bit of the latter in terms of what you're talking about, Dax, as like, so for example, you have a group like Mets, a more um, modern noise rock act who had their third album, Strange Piece, that he produced and engineered and all that junk. Um, I would imagine that a guy like Albini would go back and listen to their first two albums, see how noisy they are, see the kind of sound that they have and say, that's probably a band that I can work with. That's probably somebody that I can do something for in terms of their album. Yeah, I, I just don't I, I don't think he's the type of person to like seek out people to work with though. Well, not that I think that he seeks them out, but I think when they seek him out, I'm sure he's mindful about who mm. he's working with, as to say that if a Mets went to him and they made like I don't know, like gentle indie rock, he probably for the most part would not pursue them as somebody to um Say that they're not an ideal client for him and Correct. recommend somebody else, maybe. I could see him doing that. Correct. I wonder about that, though. So for, I'll go ahead and mention, too, uh, for the listeners, that I added four additional albums into our playlist this week. And then Caleb and I went back and added more in case people wanted to listen to more. But the four additional ones uh, that I added as production albums were uh, The Breeders' debut, Pod, Slint's debut, which Caleb mentioned, Tweez. Uh, the biggest album by Songs Ohio, which is uh, Jason Molina's initial uh, project, Magnolia Electric Company, which is a huge album in that genre, and uh, Don Caballero's American Don, which Don Caballero is a uh, later era math rock band. And the later era math rock, them, Hella, uh, even Minus the Bear, before they started adding in oodles of electronical stuff, they're, they're less distortion more like really full clean tones and it's intricate and it doesn't necessarily match Albini's production style, but his work on American Dawn, and I don't know, I would expect that Caleb might potentially enjoy it. Uh, and as for Jared and Dax, I would think that you guys could potentially enjoy it, but maybe not, you know? Um, but it's a little, it's, it, it sounds really well. I see you. I see you, Jared. I do. I did like American Dawn. Uh, definitely. And I will go ahead and say now, um, I think the one that I had not been introduced to before, I've been, I've been wanting to listen to Magnolia Electric Company for a long time now, and this was a very, very good excuse to do so, and I was not disappointed at all. No, it's uh, very good. If I were to go back really quickly, the song that I most enjoyed from Big Black or Shellac was probably the song that we played earlier from A Thousand Hertz Prayer to God, but my favorite song that I was kind of introduced to from this week is Farewell Transmission. So I will play that now. Every light on this side of the town Suddenly it all went down Now we'll all be brothers of The fossil fire of the sun Now we will Definitely, like, very out of the realm of what I expected from his production work. As to say that it was very much like a... Because it's alt-country, and I would not have expected him to be doing alt-country music. I know. It's wild, isn't it? But I think you can hear... And that track's a great track to hear it. I think you can hear a lot of the room in that recording. I mean, there's a lot of... I, you can hear a lot of reverb that I don't think is, is quote-unquote, synthetic. You know what I'm saying? I think it, so. I think that the techniques that he utilizes in recording really proved to be very useful because I don't know if you've listened to other songs Ohio albums or not. No, I have not. So the I really love the debut, and I own this. I own Magnolia Electric Company in the debut, and the day de, it's just kind of a they they're very they feel kind of cold. You know what I'm saying? Um, and somber while at the same time being fairly inviting 
Like there's there's a certain kind of distance there, and it it makes sense because Jason Molina had he struggled with alcoholism his entire you know uh, most pretty much his entire life you know other than his early ages, uh, and eventually you know that's what killed him, and uh, he just kind of struggled a lot, and I think you can feel it in the music, and I think that the recording style really works well with the ambiance that's to be created here, but it's a surprising choice. What did, did Jackson Deere? What do you guys think about that album? Dax and Jared. I enjoyed that album. You liked it? I like. I did. I liked the alt country album. Good. I'm glad you liked it. It it had some long songs on it, but it was it was good. It, I don't know what it really reminded me of necessarily, but it it, it to me is very much uh, an an album of its own. It's very much a very different type of alt country that I'm not familiar with. Would you like to know who is a brother artist in this genre? Who? Bonnie Prince Billy. Mm. Mm. I was thinking. Uh, not not exactly directly because the instrumentation is definitely very different, but I, I get a little bit of like a Mount Erie or microphones off of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit of that. Maybe some drive-by truckers. Sure, Dax. What did you think about it? Yeah, I I, I liked it. There, honestly, there wasn't a whole lot that I didn't like this week. Oh well, that's good. Yeah, it was. Um, not everything was like my favorite. You know what I mean? But like, I. I had a fine time listening to everything. There was nothing that really stood out that I didn't like. Yeah. I figured out of the four I put on, this would be the choice that would be most appealing to all of us. Tyler, I know that you were already familiar with the ones that obviously that you picked, but out of the ones that I picked that I kind of threw in, what did you think about some of those? Did you like the Godspeed You Black Emperor album or had you like did you have a chance to listen to much of it? I like Godspeed and I like that album. That's kind of an album that gets lost in their discography for me, although I enjoy it. I need to visit it more. But I mean, everyone of course, uh, Lift Your Skinny Fist is phenomenal. And the first one I ever bought because it was available and I knew it was good and I enjoyed it was uh don't bend to sin so those both those are two probably the ones that stand out to me the most from their discography right yep me as well and this is right this is in between the two but it's the last one they produced before the hiatus prior to or don't bend to sin um, so it kind of lo- I get, it got lost a little bit in discography for me but it's pretty good i mean and the sound of them that's also another one that seems kind of interesting because it's not it's it's uh Post-rock, that is very cinematic and not necessarily noisy. Right. That's what I. That's why I kind of thought that that album in particular was one that also stood out as one that felt very different from his usual kind of work. Like, I, re, I re-listened to um, Lift Your Skinny Fist, and um, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful album. I love really the whole thing when it comes down to it. But it's not the kind of sound that you would expect from a Steve Albini in any way, shape, or form. It's good. It's definitely very good, but it's not the kind of thing that you would think that he would gravitate towards, given the rest of what he usually goes with. Dax, didn't he also do Ugly by Screaming Females? Uh, yeah, he did. I think it was Ugly. Yes, it was. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, which is a very, very good album. You know how I feel about Screaming Females. That's I talked about it up. Talked a lot, a lot about it on the on the show. When was that? A month or two ago? It was. Yeah, it was about two months ago, I think. Well, and that makes sense, though. I mean, Screaming Females are noisy. And there, and you have to be as a trio, you know. So he fits in well there. Yeah. Yeah. But what's weird is, um, you know, I find that Albini's as a producer and sound engineer, and the touch that he has or doesn't have on work is typically like, a, a, it's like a portion of a band's discography. Like it's not all. In fact, not even not all. Most bands don't return to him continually. Now, whether that be a label decision or something, you know, some bands have more control to where they don't have to. I mean, you know, but not people don't there. He has a few bands that he's worked with multiple times. But for the most part, you know, it seems like one album or a couple albums. And it's kind of like an era uh, in a band's discography that makes sense to work with him or, you know. Did you see that he produced the debut album by Chevelle? Did he really? Yes, he did. I did not know that. That he is also odd. he also produced the second album by Bush, Razorblade Suitcase, recorded at Abbey Road Studios. That huh. is a weird like just collection of information that Albini did a Bush album at Abbey Road. That's so weird. Honestly, what band hasn't he worked with at this point? A I think lot. he's worked with all of them. No. Every all. single band. Every single one. Except for Pharrell, because no song that I heard this week had that four-beat intro. Bump, bump, nope. 
he did uh he he did the stooges uh comeback you know uh the weird the weirdness yep in 07 their first comeback which i mean you got to be noisy but you got to be noisy what 30 something years later almost 40 years later so tyler tyler i haven't gotten yours yet so uh what are what is your favorite song that maybe it doesn't have to be one that you already knew it could be one that you were introduced to this week or however you want to go about it and then also a big black or shellac song sir so my big black song is uh, this is my favorite big black song and i get it stuck i have to listen to it probably once a week because i just get stuck in my head and i love it it's it's uh the second song on atomizer passing complexion I really like Passing Complexion. That was a pretty good track. Yeah, I love that song. I don't know. It's just it's just so driving, and it just feels I don't know. I, I have to listen to it pretty regularly. It's definitely it's definitely in that industrial realm. Mm-hmm. Well, I love how the drum machine, you know, on that on that double beat at the end of the, of the phrase, you know, ding ding, everything is lines up, and it, it sounds like you're just banging on the largest like metal plastic like a bunch of things glued together item that you can find you know what i mean like it just slipknot-esque i guess so sure i guess you could say that there, there's is a little bit more of a, a deep a deep uh banging whereas that's kind of a, a high-pitched ringing banging i know my bangs what about uh what was a song that maybe stood out from you in terms of uh his production work well i i would be remiss if i didn't if i didn't uh do a Don Cab song on here to get some math rock in this episode. So we're going to do a Don Cab song. And if you like math rock, if you like noisy math rock, Don Cab may not be into it. But if you like the little bit lighter math rock, Don Cab's really great. And I'm going to choose the song, uh, the Peter Chris jazz, but I want you to get into like two minutes. Much of battles, yeah. It's, I, I mean, to me that stands out as something different too because it's pretty tame in terms of the you know the in your faceness. But Jared Dax, any thoughts on that on that one? That's okay. Most of the noise, most of the uh, noise music we listen to, I instrumental. Yes, anything instrumental based. I, yeah, you don't I, you don't I, really I gravitate standard. towards instrumental music. No, the, the only part. thing I know I like is that Pelican song. Mm, yes, Pelican. Because uh, there's a music video, a band called Pelican, and the entire music video is the lead singer is running to uh, try and get to the stage. So by the end of the music video, he gets on stage, and then the song is over. So it's all the instrument of the lead up, and then the end is nothing. It's, it's great. It's pretty good. Well, I don't want you to let this steer you away from math rock, Jared, because there is some math rock with vocals, and maybe you would like it. We're we're working on getting Jared into the math rock realm one of these days. We'll get him. Yes. Yeah, we'll get him. So any uh, any last closing major thoughts about Steve Albini this week? Oh, Jared, what did you see the album I stuck in there for you? Gonzo. Yeah, I did. I I actually don't care for that album very much. That album was secretly dropped on Bandcamp. They like just kind of secretly dropped it on Bandcamp, and people that like Foxy Shazam did not enjoy that album. And I went, I listened to it again um, last night on the, when I was driving and I also did not care for it still. (laughs) It's not their best work by any means. I wouldn't say that. No, no, I, yeah, it's just not as fun. It doesn't have as like, even the, 
the arena rock noise that they went for in the Church of Rock and Roll, I enjoy quite a bit more than what they were going for on Gonzo. So, but I, I appreciate that you put it in there. There you go. I stuck it. I knew that you probably. I knew it was unfortunately an album that I was sure that it wouldn't be your preferred of theirs. But I wanted yeah. to stick it in anyway. So Caleb threw uh, the Beavis and Butthead Experience album on there as well. But in in the research that I did, I don't think he actually had a hand in that album at all. I think that the reason that he's credited on Wikipedia for it is because the opening track is I Hate Myself and Want to Die, which was a unreleased track from In Utero. And so because it was the opening track of that compilation album... For some reason, it just like they he's put, listed as he's listed as the producer because he actually produced that song, but he didn't produce the album. But I will say, go listen to that Beavis and Butthead Experience album. It's it's a good album. It has a lot of good songs on it. Listen to Poetry and po- uh, Prose by Primus. Poetry <laughs> and Prose is great. Anyone for poetry. Anyone and Ninety Nine Ways to Die is one of my favorite Megadeth songs. So, uh, if that's my takeaway for not now, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay did any of y'all listen to the uh the unfreeze mcgee album i threw on there yeah i i thought it was interesting it's an interesting uh jam band stuff um i'm not a big jam band person but i like unfreeze mcgee and i like this album and i think it's because a lot of their songs are more tr- of a transformative you know what i mean they tend to have multiple ideas that they string together and that's how they do it instead of just like you know, sitting out there and jamming, jamming. Anywho, Steve Albini's where it's at. Steve Albini's where it's at, gang. Everyone should go listen to some Big Black and Shellac and uh, like it because you should. And then check out all the other stuff. Because you can get down a rabbit hole, you know, with the production creds, and it's kind of fun to do so. Makes total sense to me. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Record Roundtable. This week we've been talking about Steve Albini, and next week we're going to be talking about Bill Withers. Check out all of our social media, i.e. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Check out our website. Check out our Patreon, of course. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.